How do we feel pain? What parts of the brain control our reaction to painful sensations? And how is stem cell technology revolutionising the search for better treatment for chronic pain? I'm Anna Machen, and I'm an evolutionary anthropologist. In this series from the Bertarelli Foundation, I'm going behind the scenes of some of the most cutting-edge neuroscience research to explore our brains, from before birth to after death. And this week, we're looking at the neuroscience of pain. You have dull pains, you have sharp pains, yeah. you have aching pains. My pain just affects everything, my whole life, what I am, what I've become. We are beginning to get very promising and exciting hits, and I, I hope in due course that is going to lead to completely novel approaches to, to manage pain. This is how we're wired. Although obviously unpleasant, pain is a fundamental part of the human experience. Whether it's stubbing our toe, burning our hand on a hot pan or recovering from surgery, at some point or another we all come face to face with pain. And our brains are wired for us to pay close attention to whatever is harming us. And most of the time, that's a good thing. The pain is there to protect us. But that's not the case for everyone. It starts in the morning with, with sort of just lying in, in bed, sort of, I kind of do like a mental check as to how bits are, and then that will either dictate whether I try and roll off the bed or whether I can sit up. And on a bad day, I would just literally sit in my dressing gown. I'm Rachel, I'm 55 years old, and I was born and live in Leicestershire. I'm married to this wonderful man that puts up with me. And I've got three boys and two dogs. And I've always, always danced. I started dancing with two. And then Helen, who, who is my sister, set up a dancing school. So we did all our teaching exams and we had our own school. So well, I taught there more than 25 years. So yeah, so love dance. It was never, never seemed like a job. I always used to say when I'm grown up, I'll get a proper job. Could be very stressful, but Seeing the children develop and progress was, was always a lovely thing. We used to do a lot of choreography. We did a lot of competitions, so the, it was always nice seeing the kids you know, get up on stage and, and do their best. It was uh, stressful, but very pleasurable. Yeah, it was good. Until it started not getting good with my health. Because obviously at first it would, my pain and my problems would like come in waves. So I'd be okay for, I don't know, a couple of weeks, three weeks. And then all of a sudden I'd be sort of tired and achy and, and trying to physically dance. And to try and, and try and do that was almost impossible. So I'd have to kind of cancel lessons or try and reorganise things. And it, and it, it was okay at first because you can, you can do that. But as, as things progressively got the waves got closer and, and the, the episodes were, were closer together and it was longer. It, 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 becomes, it becomes difficult for the others as well, for the other teachers. 2014 was when I ended up stopping work. I had a bad flare-up, so that was a very stressful time as well. So I was sent to, to a rheumatologist and um, he's the one that told me, no, it's not arthritis, but I have all the trigger points for fibromyalgia. Fibromyalgia is a chronic pain condition that comes along with sleep issues, heavy fatigue 
brain fog and headaches. And it's shared with Frida Kahlo, Morgan Freeman and even Lady Gaga. Rachel spoke to us with her husband Andy by her side. Sometimes I do feel like I'm fighting an imaginary battle because it's, I don't know, that's me. That in itself is stressful and wearing. It's not always consistent. You know, one day it could... I have pain everywhere all the time, but there's certain areas then that would be worse on certain days. So, like today when I'm sitting here, my, my lower back, I would say that was a pain, not just an ache. I have a hypersensitivity to light and sound, like any sort of flashing lights. My middle son, bless him, is into... Um, he does a lot of amateur dramatics, and we go and watch them, and I'm I'm at the back of the theatre with my sunglasses on and my earplugs in because it's just too much get very very itchy skin to the stage where I scratch myself feels like I've got ants crawling over me luckily that's not permanently but I've got so many different sort of sores everywhere from just from scratching and then I sort of like think instead of scratching I'll pinch instead to try and get rid of the feeling but it is it just feels like there's creepy crawlies crawling all over me. It's just aching aching limbs, just sort of like sometimes I do have a, a mobility scooter which which we've purchased so that it made it so I could go out or we could go out and take the dogs for a walk. But sometimes just holding on to the just holding on to the handle just makes my arms feel so heavy and so achy. But the tiredness and the fatigue, sometimes literally that just feels like someone's unplugged me. My pain just affects everything my whole life, what I am, what I've become. This does sound dramatic, but I almost mourn the loss of what I was. You know, physic being physically active and doing it without even thinking about it, you take it for granted. You really massively take it for granted. We'll hear more about fibromyalgia and Rachel's journey later. But unfortunately, it joins a long list of chronic pain conditions that desperately need more research and better treatments. Because the reality is, despite pain being a universal experience and the costs associated with chronic pain in the USA beating out those from cancer, cardiovascular disease and metabolic diseases like diabetes, it has historically been under-researched and underappreciated. At least until people like Harvard Medical School's Professor Clifford Wolf came along. When I was a medical student, and uh, particularly in the surgical wards, at that time, if you had major surgery in the post-operative wards, the patients were all lying there crying, complaining of pain. And uh, at least in South Africa at that time, there was minimal post-operative management. And the expectation was, you have surgery and therefore you have pain and just put up with it. And uh, it was clear to me that the patients, uh, in they were suffering, they, it was impacting their recovery. And that really piqued my interest because my original research had all been about fever and I thought I had some exposure to neuroscience, but I really wanted to know how is pain generated, what what is pain and how can it be treated. And as I began to explore it, at least at that time, it was a, a very crude and limited part of neurosciences and part of my career has been trying to integrate it fully into the realm of neuroscience and be a major part of it, which fortunately today it has become. So you actually asked the question there, which I think is, is, is the first question we have to ask. What is pain? At the time that I was first exposed to it, the assumption was pain is pain. It is the experience of an unpleasant sensation. 
what we now appreciate is that there are many different kinds of pain. So in critical, important sense, and this is the evolutionary drive for pain, pain warns us about danger in the environment. And we feel pain when we are exposed to something that is too hot or too cold or we have a mechanical force like a pinprick. And that is protective pain. It shares with it elements of the pain that a patient may have when they have chronic low back pain or diabetic neuropathy or or post-surgical pain. And so we use the same word, but mechanistically they're not the same. And that's taken a long time to extricate the fact that there are different kinds of pains. And we need to understand that if we are to treat them in the most effective way. So if we've got at one end of that spectrum, so that, that acute pain that might occur, you know, you, you cut yourself, you burn yourself, and that obviously has an adaptive purpose. But yes, then at the other one, we have chronic pain, and you've mentioned the mechanisms are different. I imagine chronic pain is actually maladaptive. Absolutely. So we have the adaptive protective pain. We also, the pain after trauma, any kind of physical injury or surgery, is also adaptive in the sense that normally... If you touch yourself, it's not painful. If you move a joint, it's not painful. But if you have surgery on a joint, every movement is exquisitely painful. And that is a protective mechanism as well. It's a means by which the body says, do not use this bodily part until you have healing. And therefore, pain is helping the healing process. Where it becomes truly maladaptive is where there is no danger in the environment. There's no ongoing inflammation. There's no ongoing trauma. There's just pain. And that really constitutes a disease state of the nervous system itself. And so instead of pain being a symptom of disease, pain now is the disease. Many chronic pain conditions are poorly understood, including fibromyalgia, which was only first defined in 1990. Despite that, research has shed some light on the disorder, as our producer Eva explains. Although fibromyalgia is thought to affect about 2-5% to of the population, there is no test you can take or biomarker that can be measured that can definitively diagnose it. Instead, there's a long list of other diseases that must be ruled out first, from Lyme disease and hepatitis C to spondyloarthritis and Parkinson's. This can make for a long, painful diagnostic process for people already suffering with difficult and exhausting symptoms. Scientists do know that fibromyalgia often comes on after the body has experienced a shock, like a nasty infection, physical trauma or even significant psychological distress. It's much more common in women than men and it's thought to have a significant genetic component – where changes in genes involved in certain neurotransmitter systems can make you more susceptible to developing it after psychological stress or illness. Imaging studies have confirmed increased pain and sensory issues in the brains of people with fibromyalgia, and scientists have also found imbalances in neurotransmitters that are implicated in pain and sensory transmission. However, Scientists and doctors haven't reached an agreement on the specific mechanism of the disease, with theories including immune system dysregulation and issues with the autonomic nervous system that regulates heart rate. Because of this, there is no universally agreed-upon treatment, although medications like antidepressants to regulate neurotransmitters and anti-seizure medication to reduce pain have been trialled to varying levels of success. Exercise does have good evidence for improving sleep, 
and may help reduce pain and fatigue, but can be exceptionally difficult for patients to participate in due to the fatigue and pain they experience. And for Rachel and Andy, fibromyalgia has completely changed their lives. After I stopped work, I didn't go back into dancing or didn't want to didn't want to go to see the shows and stuff like that because I didn't want the girls to to see what I'd become because it, like if I can't make a sentence or can't or I'm just not coming out I don't want people to see that that's who I am now from what I was and I find that really hard we've got a wheelchair that we do use if we do go out just because it's safer I can't physically walk around the shops and and stuff like that so I don't go shopping now but I just don't like I don't like what I've become and how and the change you know I've put a lot of weight on can't string a sentence together you do my hair Andy does my hair can't even like if we're going somewhere he's you've got qualification <laughs> he's got no hair <laughs> My this is a man that's bold. <laughs> my hairdresser would come to the house and she's actually taught Andy how to, to straighten my hair, how to put a curl in my hair and how to blow dry my hair. Just <laughs> silly things like that. It's, it's... That's because you can't hold your arms up long enough no. to completely blow dry your hair. I can't, I can't. On a good day, I might be able to shower myself. On a bad day... I find that embarrassing, even asking him to, if I'm I'm struggling, to sort of like, I know he's my husband and I love him dearly, but I don't, again, he didn't sign up for this. That's not, you know, sickness and in health. You didn't. I think it was mentioned at the time. (laughs) He didn't sign up for this. (laughs) I've got plenty of people that say, oh, no, 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 I'll help you. I don't mind. I'm like, I know you don't mind, but I mind. I struggle massively with that because it, it's, it's frustrating, it's isolating. I try not to get upset about it because trying to learn to cope with what my new normal is is very, very hard. That's been one of the hardest things, not just because people don't understand, but I personally don't understand why it's happening to me. But is this, is this me now for, for the rest of my time? The pain that Rachel experiences is the maladaptive, chronic pain we discussed earlier. But what's happening in our nervous system when we experience acute pain? It turns out there are highly specialised sensory neurons that are adapted to respond only to noxious stimuli. They require, for example, a temperature of 42 degrees, which is exactly the point at which, if you're having a shower, you say, well, this is pleasantly comfortable and warmly hottish, and then suddenly it becomes burning hot. And that's 42 degrees, and almost all of us within one or maximum two degrees of that will have that transition. There are also uh, sensory neurons that are only activated by mechanical stimuli that are potentially damaging to the tissue, such as pinprick or extreme pressure. These are called nociceptors because they respond to noxious stimuli. And what happens with inflammation is the nociceptors become what we call sensitized. One of the best examples is a sunburn. Before we go out to the beach, we have a nice shower, it's all pleasantly warm, you get, go to the beach, you get all sunburned, you come back and have a shower at the same temperature, and now that is burning hot, even though it's at a, what was normally a comfortable temperature. And that's because of what we call the sensitization of the nociceptors. Their threshold drops, they can now be activated by what 
would normally be innocuous stimuli. And that's part of the protective mechanism saying there's damage there. The body needs to protect you by causing pain until that, that damage is repaired. Those are the, the fundamental aspects of the triggering of, of adaptive pain. Okay, so, so those nociceptors get triggered by a stimuli. Where does that first start to go, into the spinal cord and then up to the brain? Or is some of our perception of pain in our spinal cord or is it all in our brain? Perceptional events are all in the brain. Our, our capacity to feel something, to understand it, and, and this is a key aspect of pain, is it's a subjective experience. How do you measure pain? Do you need to ask someone, do you have pain, what kind of pain and how intense it is? However, the spinal cord is a major processing part of the central nervous system. And yes, the sensory inflow from these nociceptors goes into the spinal cord. They terminate there. They are processed by local circuits, which filter out some of the information and in most cases reduce it so that the key element, where is the pain, how intense and how long does it last, this is the information we can pick up. However, is also the site where pathological changes can occur and where the maladaptive pain arises, at least in part in the spinal cord. And actually, that was my first major discovery at University College London, phenomenon of central sensitization. So in the same way that nociceptors can be sensitized by inflammation, their threshold drops and they can now be activated by innocuous stimuli, there are changes that can occur in the circuitry in the spinal cord such that normal inputs that don't produce pain, such as light touch, now feeds into the pain pathway, goes up to the, the brain and the cortex, to that part of the, the brain that we have the conscious awareness of, of pain. Okay, so, so you could stimulate a touch receptor, for example, that's not a nociceptor, but because of some pathology that's occurring in this, you would feel that as pain, you would perceive, and that's where chronic pain Absolutely. is. Absolutely. So one of the Major causes of chronic persistent pain is neuropathic pain, which is pain associated with damage to the nervous system. And the nervous system reacts to that damage by trying to compensate, but it overcompensates and changes the processing such that it becomes pathological processing. And one aspect of a very important aspect, which patients with neuropathic pain will tell you about, is that light touch to the area where their nerve is damaged is exquisitely painful. Cold is another major stimulus. Cool stimulus now becomes burning and very unpleasant and lasts for a long, long period. And that's unfortunately something Rachel is very familiar with. Sometimes it can be like a stab. Like I, I was thinking, I nearly wrote this down last night, but I, I, got, I got into bed and I feel like princess in the pea because I can't get comfortable because it's just when I'm lying on my side and into the into the hip it's it's just there it's just pushing and just to touch to touch areas he'll, he'll sometimes do that and I'm like oh and it's it wasn't a dead arm it was not given but it, but it would be just such a and the pain lingers when I get a sharp thing like that I feel it and that's when maybe that is in my head because he's not touching me anymore so why am I still feeling that pain as, as to... Sometimes I'll get a pain and it literally takes my breath. And it's like, I can't move now from that because I don't want to... If I move from this position, am I going to get the same pain again? And I just have to try and relax out of it. Although we feel pain in our limbs or bodies, we are experiencing the pain where we experience everything in our brains. 
multiple areas of the brain, the brainstem, the thalamus, and the cortex are all activated by these stimuli. So there's not just a single pathway, there's a divergent pathway. And the reason for that is that pain is important. If, if there is some environmental danger there, you need to pay attention. You can't say, oh, I've touched my hand on a burning stove. I'll come back to it in 10 minutes' time. You need to react immediately. So you need not only the sensation of pain, it's got to be unpleasant, so it has to have this aversive quality that makes us feel bad. It also needs to demand attention. You, so whatever else you're doing has to stop until you deal with it. So pain at that particular moment takes over many parts of the brain and and. and in the end, the pain experience is a combination of all of those. So there are multiple parts of the pain. Some are what we call the purely sensory discriminative, which is the nature of the pain, where it's located and its intensity. But the other parts are these, particularly the aversiveness, the pain is so unpleasant, it makes me cry, and et cetera. But that is a good quality of pain because you learn then to try and avoid sensations where, uh, or situations where pain would arise. So there's a locomotor response as well. And in some cases, some extreme cases, we've given the example, if you touch a hot stove, yes, you will pay attention and you will be aware of it. But if, if you have a major surgery where your life is threatened unless you get out of the way, for example, of a, a car accident, in those circumstances, many people don't feel pain. That The brain actually switches off the pain because now the life-saving activities to get out of that dangerous circumstance and pain is no longer helping you there, it's actually suppressing it. So the brain knows that and can switch or can at times completely switch off. The point is really that pain does not occur by itself. It is part of the overall functioning of the nervous system and and it's in that context. It's also colored by memory. So if you've had unpleasant experiences associated with pain, these can also come back and contribute to what you feel at this particular moment. Right, so there's actually an element of memory Absolutely. recall in there as well. Yeah. And, and in particular, uh, what has been discovered in the last 20 years, that, for example, that infants exposed to damaging stimuli have a much greater susceptibility when they're older to feel pain than those who have not had the same experience. So there are these very long consequences that can persist. Really? So, so for example, if you, for example, had a baby who was in neonatal care and experienced maybe a lot of invasive procedure, the yeah. argument then is as once they're older, they're hypersensitized to... The vast majority. Not, not all of them, yeah. but they, they, the spectrum has shifted. Yes, they are at higher risk of having pain. For a long time, when I was in London, it was felt that babies did not feel pain. And one of the reasons that was felt is because they can't report pain. However, we do know they cry, but they cry when they're hungry. They cry when they're bored. They sometimes cry for no obvious reason at all, but they also do cry when they're injured. And in fact, we now do appreciate that almost certainly they do feel pain and that that old-fashioned view that they didn't need to be treated for their pain was very unfortunate. Fortunately, that has changed and has made an, an, an enormous impact. But there are some rare diseases called congenital insensitivity to pain. This is where genetic mutations block these signaling and these pain-triggering neurons. And that's, that's a disaster as well because if you don't feel pain, you don't get the warning signals. So that every time you eat, you can't tell the difference between if you're chewing your tongue or you're chewing your food. You, you can't tell if you're drinking some pleasantly warm cup of coffee or if it's burning hot. And people, in consequence 
injure themselves all the time. And for example, these patients with this disease, the tips of their fingers are all damaged because we explore the world with our fingers, and so are their lips and their tongues. And, and in fact, most of them don't live beyond their 20s because detective danger is a crucial part of the way in which we can live in a dangerous environment. There's been some very good studies using um, identical and non-identical twins. And based on that, the estimate is that something like 50% of the risk of developing pain is genetic, which is very high. That's really high. And one of the reasons we think that's true is that in the past, at least the chronic persistent pain that is now the major clinical problems, like diabetic neuropathy, chronic low back pain, uh, post-hepatic neuralgia, etc., are diseases of the middle and late, late ages after you've had your children. So evolution is all about transferring your genes to your offspring. And in that time, most people do not have chronic piston. There are some, but the vast majority don't. Whereas evolution hasn't filtered out, and therefore people in their middle ages have a very high genetic risk. There was a very nice study in, in, in Denmark looking at a hernia repair, and they looked at every single patient who had a hernia repair, and essentially the damage is almost identical. And something like 10% of those patients had severe excruciating pain that went on and on. No one had ever picked it up because they never went back to the surgeon. They just went home and felt very miserable. But it turns out that there are 10% of people who even that relatively minor surgery is sufficient to trigger them into a chronic persistent pain state. For Rachel, her symptoms started not long after having a nasty round of glandular fever while working a dance competition. And scientists and doctors have found an association between the Epstein-Barr virus that causes glandular fever and fibromyalgia, perhaps in a similar way to how the coronavirus can cause long COVID. So, what treatments are available for pain and how do they work? For example, if you want to prevent a patient feeling pain when a surgeon cuts through their skin with a scalpel, you need something that switches off those nociceptors. Uh, and that could be a local anesthetic or very strong opioid. Once you have tissue damage and you then have the hypersensitivity, that's where non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs and opioids can work in a, a post-operative setting. So there we're talking about things like morphine yeah. or something, aspirin or exactly. that kind of thing. Okay. And those do work. However, the, the problem is, as uh, everyone is aware, that morphine is both very dangerous in the sense that uh, – it causes respiratory depression, and there's a high risk of diversion and abuse and, and tolerance. And uh, so one of the major drives in the, in the pain field now is, can we devise an analgesic that could totally replace the opioids? And certainly that's something many people are working for. When it comes to the chronic persistent pain, unfortunately, uh, the treatments there are generally much less efficacious and are associated with quite substantial side effects. Patients who do have neuropathic pain, one of the measures we use in the pain field is how many patients do you need to treat to get one patient to have a 50% reduction in their pain? And believe it or not, for chronic pain, the answer is at best seven patients and typically more like 20. So you need something like 10 patients to be treated for only one of them to have a successful be, reduction. Okay. So there's an enormous unmet need there. And that's why patients then start taking more opioids, which 
unfortunately, in a chronic setting, stop working, actually. And the reason why patients continue to use their opioids in a chronic setting is because when they stop using the uh, opioids, they get withdrawal symptoms, which are so unpleasant, they go back on them, not to reduce their pain, but just to prevent the withdrawal symptoms. Okay. And is that because when you're talking about chronic pain, it's not actually the a dysfunction in the nociceptors. It's not the nose. It's something in the spinal cord. So it's I, a is combination it like, of both. Okay, so so that treatment can maybe deal with the nociceptors, but it can't deal with whatever is happening in the spinal cord. Yeah, one of the problems is if we have to shut off the nociceptor input from a, a damaged nerve, for example. But if that switched off all the nociceptors in that person, we're back to this problem. When they drink, how can they tell if the difference between being warm and painfully hot? So we cannot give a treatment that is going to switch off all nociceptor function. We can only do it acutely under surgery or immediately after major trauma. But you can't have a patient, again, that would destroy the protective function of pain. So our treatment has to preserve that. And, and that's, that makes it more challenging. And then when we go into the central nervous system, one of the problems is that the circuits that are devoted to pain and cause the sensation of pain, the mechanisms involved in the way in which one neuron communicates with another have many features in common with other circuits that have nothing to do with pain, whether they could be with vision or audition or cognition. And therefore, the drugs that suppress the pain by targeting the cortical functioning often have these. I remember uh, when I was at a pain clinic here in, in Boston and a very senior academic from one of the major institutions came here and he said he had unbearable pain, it was terrible and uh, he was put on a centrally acting a, a drug for it and he came back the next time and he said, uh, the trouble with this treatment is it did reduce my pain but it also reduced my IQ such that I was now had the same IQ as all my, the rest of my faculty <laughs> instead of being <laughs> chairman of the department. <laughs> Okay, that is quite a side effect. Okay, so so the issue we have with the current treatments is that is that side effect. So so you, you interfere with one thing and you end up interfering with lots of other right. things, which so then affect so daily life. So we really the, again the major go- current goal now is how can we focus in on those features that are unique to the pain system so that will not have side effects. For example, local anesthetics are sodium channel blockers. They are non-selective. They block every sodium channel. Unfortunately, that means not only will they block activity in nociceptors, but they will, anyone go to the dentist, you don't feel touch, your muscles stop working. And if they spread systemically throughout the body, they will also affect the heart because the heart also has sodium channels. And so there's a high risk of any excitable tissue, whether it's nervous or cardiovascular system being affected. And therefore, local anesthetics have what we call a very low therapeutic index, the dose at which we get pain relief and the dose at which you start getting side effects are all really overlap. So they're almost the same. Do you know yet what those unique features of the pain system are that you could target? Or is that the question? We've got to locate what they are. Yeah. One of the big breakthroughs in pain research resulted in the Nobel Prize last year with David Julius and Artem Pataputian. And they identified uh, some of the key what we call transducers. These are receptors or ion channels that convert an external stimulus, say a heat stimulus, into electrical activity to initiate the activity in the nociceptors. Once they identify TRIP-V1 and TRIP-A1 and, and these other channels that detect noxious stimuli, that will be one way of, of blocking uh, pain. The only trouble is we come back to the same problem. If you block that transducer that is activated only by noxious heat, 
then you will not be aware of the danger of noxious heat. So that is our real challenge is we've got to find means that we can switch off pain in very defined circumstances, such as surgery. But in other cases, what we've got to do is convert pathological pain, the persistent neuropathic pain, back to a healthy state. In other words, the person can, can, will feel pain with a pinprick, but will stop feeling pain associated with the nerve injury. And that, that is our big change, is to reduce the disease effects of the, of, of the nerve damage. And unfortunately for Rachel, despite her taking several medications already, none of the treatments they have tried have made much of a difference. So as far as like therapies, we did the, there was the occupational therapy. I had physiotherapy quite a bit as well in the early in the early days somebody put us in touch with there's a lymphatic draining a massage which we had which we paid private for which wasn't wasn't cheap but that was something because we went through a phase of trying anything that people would say try this try that I don't think anything that I've tried has I would say given any any relief but I guess where I am now with with my journey because we've kind of been there, done that, done that, done that. I'm kind of like, that's where I say I'm kind of existing with it now, rather than living, because... There isn't anywhere else to go. No, yeah, I guess there isn't really anywhere else to go, and things that we've tried haven't made a difference, so this is my new normal. I have to now work on myself to make me accept that and hope that other people can as well. Clifford's lab is searching for better painkillers that would help people like Rachel. My approach to pain is if we are to manage pain, uh, we need to understand it. And so part of it is really dissecting out the exact mechanism, the, the neurobiological mechanisms underlying pain. And as I do that, it's revealing potential new targets for the development of new analgesics and, and as well as new ways of measuring pain. Increasingly in the last few years, I've really set up what is the equivalent of an academic biotech. We have developed tools and technologies now to conduct very high throughput screening, screening hundreds of thousands of compounds. And the approach that we're taking is we're using stem cell-derived neurons that are part of the pain circuit, and we can now reproduce them and grow them in a dish. So, for example, the nociceptors that are the triggering sensory neurons that initiate the sensation of pain, we can now make them from stem cells, grow them in a dish. We can expose them to inflammatory mediators as they would be in a patient having arthritis, for example, and we can see how they become excised. We can take the stem cell from a patient with diabetic neuropathy, and we can see why that individual has a risk of developing a neuropathic pain or not. One of the major forms of persistent pain is a consequence of the treatment of cancer. So many chemotherapeutic agents are so toxic that not only do they kill the cancer cells, which is desirable, but they actually damage the nervous system and cause neuropathy and neuropathic pain. And the pain and the loss of sensation they have are so severe, they have to stop their cancer treatment. We can put those chemotherapeutic agents on our sensory neurons growing in a dish, and we can see the changes in the function. And we can now screen for drugs that can block that and protect the cells. And we are beginning to get very promising and exciting hits. And I I hope in due course that is going to lead to completely novel approaches to to manage pain. So a stem cell being a cell that can become anything, essentially. And therefore you're able, in your dish, to grow the neurons you need 
or the nociceptors that you need. And then you can actually repeatedly test different things on those. Yep. So it's like an endless supply. Absolutely. And it's, it's a whole new form of drug screening because instead of just going for a target and looking for a compound that acts only on that target, we are now rather saying, let's find compounds that can suppress the activation of a nociceptor or can suppress the pathological excitability that's present in a patient who has nerve injury. And once we find the compounds, we can then later on see how they're acting on targets. But our actual search is not for the target, but for the suppression of the disease state. Mm. And that's a different different way of approaching drug discovery. Does this mean also this, this technique has meant that for you, it's sped up that process of finding those drugs? A- absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Because you can go directly to them. In the past, our standard approach was do research, come up with potential targets, then look for drugs that are on the targets. But now we just look directly for the compounds that will have the desired profile we're looking for. That's, yeah, that's and, brilliant. And we have to screen hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them to find them. And it, you know, we've just finished a screen of 110,000 compounds, but we've now got 100 of those compounds that at least so far are doing exactly what we want. And while the search for better treatment continues, Rachel and Andy are finding ways to enjoy life where they can. Do you feel like you're missing out on life that you could have had with me? Do you? Yeah. I don't. Like the walks along the beach and stuff like that, do you? I can drag you along in a wheelchair. <laughs> oh, <well. laughs> no, you're going to do Hawaii now, aren't you? Yes. So as a treat, I managed to get Rachel to Hawaii. But you know what? We, you know what we did do when we were there. We went snagging. That's snagging. That's what we did. So, right. so I enjoy snorkeling and swimming and water in the ocean. And I said to Rachel, "We're in Hawaii. I will take you snorkeling." We researched a beach where it was very close. The actual reef was very close to the beach. The beach was quite short. Good parking. Good accessibility. So all we've got to do is just carry you down to the edge of the water, and you'll be fine. <laughs> So um, we kitted her out with snorkel and flippers and got her in the water. And you had a good go at it, but you couldn't do it. There wasn't, it was just too physically demanding. She couldn't do it. So I ended up with a noodle tucked underneath Rachel's arms, laying face down in the water. And then she held on to a piece of rope onto me and then I swam around, dragging Rachel behind me. So we did go snorkeling, because it was sort of like a bit of dragging it, so that's why we call it snagging, it don't we? Snagging. We went snagging. I saw some wonderful things, but I was literally just being dragged around. <laughs> so, uh, and I was going, come on, we've got a bit longer, and he's going, I'm absolutely knackered. And I'm going, no, 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 because it was the green, it was the green turtle, and we were like, oh, try and let's follow it. And he's going, you were joking me. I was like, oh, this is just so wonderful. But it was like, yeah, so he just like, snagged me around the... Um, Snagged yeah. you round Kona, yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, yeah, that was, that was a very special occasion. And that was back in 2018 anyway, so that was not where we are now. I don't think you'd like to drag me around anywhere now, would you? I'd drag you anywhere, darling. I do, every day. Thank you so much to Rachel, Andy and Clifford Wolf. We're back in a few weeks to explore the neuroscience of parenthood. In the meantime, join us in two weeks for another one of our focus episodes, where Eva's diving into the world of virtual reality as a treatment for chronic pain. I'm Anna Machen, 
And this is How We're Wired. How We're Wired is a fresh air production for the Bertorelli Foundation. It's produced by Eva Higginbotham. Follow now for free so you never miss an episode.